I started my career in workforce development with the state of Kentucky in 2010. That experience ignited a deep passion for manufacturing within me. I started this show hoping to raise more awareness around the bright outlook manufacturing careers have. Join me as I sit down with some of the manufacturing industry's most successful change makers and learn how they're partnering people with technology. It's time to give people more meaningful work. This is Workforce 4.0. All right. Hey, hi. How are you guys out there? Um, and we are live. And uh, today is a very special day because this is our season finale of Workforce 4.0. And I couldn't think of a better guest to have on than Ben Armstrong. Um, ben is an MIT researcher and he works a lot on uh, studying SMEs, which is a huge um, part of my client base as well. And I'm just really excited to get into what your, your takeaways are from your research and what you feel like the future of Workforce 4.0 will be and, and kind of what you're seeing now. So welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I start every show, um, you know, I'm a huge music lover. So I start every show with uh, kind of your favorite song or, or I do karaoke events sometimes, but um, can you share with us kind of what your favorite song is or, or one of one of your favorites? Yeah, you know, while while working on these issues, I typically listen to music, and it's it's not karaoke music because there there are no words. Uh, but I really like uh, Max Richter and his Infra series, which is all kind of a modern take on on more classical music. So um, yeah, I'll I'll give it to one of Max Richter's uh, Infra songs. I love that. Um, I'm gonna write that down because I really enjoy when I'm working. Um, I like kind of the same like instrumentals and things like that um have you ever heard of the band uh, piano guys no no i haven't they're really they're really cool they take um they take like pop hits um and then they mix it with classical hits so like um they'll take a beethoven song and they'll mix it with like um i don't know um just a rock band or something that you would you would be familiar with but they don't have any lyrics and it's perfect for like deep work and, and deep thinking. So I think you'd like them. Great. Awesome. Well, perfect. Well, I want to remind anybody that's watching today, if you guys have any questions for Ben or want to contribute to the conversation in any way, please just drop your comments. I'll be going over those as we go over the conversation as well. And uh, without further ado, let's, uh, let's get started into the conversation. Does that sound good with you? Sure. Perfect. Okay, so um, I have read your Forbes article, and I read that back when it was published um, back in 2021. I thought it was some really great content because you really get in depth with um, what's what's kind of missing in the workforce from what you're seeing through your research. And um, outside of that, you've also been published several times for your research work at MIT. And, um, you know, when you think about regarding like robots and automation, I think that uh, I think some of the findings may be similar to what I see as well. But I'd love to get your takes on it. Um, but the, pro the, the 
prime focus of your research is usually SMEs, right? Yeah, so, you know, I think the, um, there, there's a large gap in terms of technology adoption, wages, and even workforce challenges between large and small firms. So 98% of all manufacturers have fewer than 500 people. And you know, th that's the, the big chunk that I focus on. Of course, when you focus on smaller and medium firms, um, it's necessary also to think about the larger manufacturers that might buy their products because these small medium firms typically uh th their bread and butter are at the, the lower tiers of the supply chain and then the larger oems clearly can can have influence or in some cases even dictate uh the types of business practices that their suppliers adopt so so it's not like smes exist in a vacuum certainly they respond to cues and trends at, at larger firms but i do think they face a particular set of challenges one difference is that a lot of these firms are are privately and even family owned, they're multi-generational businesses that have existed for a longer time and have a tougher time accessing capital to really transform, to think about um, think about technology or to think about their production processes in a greenfield way. Oftentimes they're in buildings or working with processes that are generations old. So that's, a, that's an inherent challenge. There's something, I think, beautiful about that. There's something romantic about it. And, and, you know, the American factory that dates back to uh, the world wars, that, that, that there's something that's really, I think, appealing about supporting these SMEs, but they also have a challenge because they're dealing with legacy equipment. They're dealing with people who've been doing similar uh, types of work for, for decades and decades. So, so thinking about change or technology upgrading in that context is very different than a firm that might be uh, 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 setting up a new greenfield factory um, every few years or a, a startup. And there, there are more and more manufacturing startups over the last five years um, that, that is, is starting fresh with, with mostly new equipment and it's able to recruit workers to a more exciting uh, production environment. So, so those legacy SMEs, I think, face a different set of challenges. And they also just, they, they don't adopt technology as quickly. Um, and, and that's borne out by the data. So while capital expenditures have increased among the largest firms, they've been flat at, at SMEs, the capital expenditures per worker. And overall productivity at SMEs, this is measured as value added per worker, uh, has lagged far behind at productivity at, at larger firms. And same with wages. So, so SMEs oftentimes have a tough time competing with their larger peers um, for production workers because the, the large firms just can pay more, um, which is of course linked to their investment in technology and their productivity. So this is one reason why I focus on SMEs because they're a critical piece of, of US manufacturing. Um, they're, the success of the large firm depends on, on their capabilities and yet they face uh, a lot of uh, an uphill road, let's say. Absolutely. Yeah, because there's a, you know, as you just described, there's a lot of challenges that SMEs face in in competing with the larger manufacturing companies. Um, you know, and given some of those challenges, uh, what do you think that the technology, how do you think the technology alone will say? How do you think that will play a role in the overall success rate of, of the survival of, of SMEs? Did you say the technology alone? Yeah, just the technology that's coming out um, with, mm -hmm. you know, when you think of like industry 4.0 technology and stuff, um, like how do you how do you think, you know, first of all, if there is a gap that exists there between SMEs and industry 4.0 technology, yeah, um, how does that gap, you know, how is that going to play into their ability to really compete uh, in the future in, in retaining and attracting uh, recruiting employees. 
Yeah, this is one one area where I think I depart or I, I think about it a bit differently than a lot of other folks in, in the field where there have been a lot of assumptions about Industry 4.0 technology, which, of course, you know, I think the term and a lot of the technologies come out of Germany um, and these ideas of a connected factory are, are very powerful and lead to a lot of, you know, kind of spark the imagination. Well, what if we could get our uh, all of our equipment to connect to our ERP, to connect to our um, other software systems, and then we could be much more efficient and our, our workers could even be measured on performance. So, so there's a lot of um, I think that the initial thinking and the thinking that I've read about Industry 4.0 has assumed that because this technology exists and these capabilities exist in theory, that it will inevitably have an impact on how firms do business and how workers, um, you know, what job opportunities workers have and what tasks they take on. Uh, in practice, I think it's much different. I, I don't know of many firms at all that have uh, achieved the theoretical limits of Industry 4.0 or even gotten close. So the idea of a connected factory is a fantasy for most firms. And even the firms that have achieved it, they might have one or two connected factories, but th their other factories are, are much more prosaic. So I think the um, I think that uh, focusing on the technology frontier and, and the the skills and the tasks that might exist in a totally connected factory is pretty far different from what the practical workforce challenges are at many factories across the country, large and small. So just to give you an example, you know, fewer than 10% of, uh, of factories in the United States have any robots at all. And that number the, the number of new robot installations has been pretty flat over time. I'm, I'm mentioning robots because they're kind of a common and pretty tangible uh, piece of equipment, um, sure. also because you have them in your logo. Um, but but yeah, so so even robots, which we think of as you know even 10 years ago being what it, it you know what it meant to be an advanced manufacturer in part meant having robotics. It's it's still a, a really small minority of, of firms that have adopted any robots at all, and about half of the firms that have adopted robots just have one. It's not like their whole factory is connected. It's like the robot might be just an island on the factory floor, even if it's if it's used at all. So I, I think the the discussions of the technological possibilities of robotics, Industry 4.0, more automated processes has really distracted from some of the adoption challenges in uh, for, for, for many companies. And what does it mean if a company hasn't adopted this technology? It means that the skills they require among their workers are much more basic, are, are, are more similar to the skills of 10, 20 years ago. So when my colleagues and I, we go talk to manufacturers and we ask them um, what job, what positions are open, what skills are you looking for to fill them? We also ask them about how they think about new equipment purchases and new technologies. They don't typically identify very specific skills that they need. They talk about hire for will, train for skill. They want to hire people who will show up on time, who have a good attitude, who they think can thrive in their work environment. And then they invest years in, in training these individuals to fit their specific needs and their specific constellation of technologies on the factory floor. So uh, when, when I look at this, I can understand why SDBs make that, in particular, make that decision of hire for will, train for skill. But I also think it would be much more efficient if they were able to hire from a pool of workers that had some of those capabilities that they would be trying to train for in the first one to three years. So it didn't it didn't have to take so long to get a worker who is fully capable on the factory floor. You know, why is this important now? It's because turnover is higher. 
for, for manufacturers. A lot of SMEs in the past had relied on people to be there their whole career or much of their career for more than a decade. But now if you have high turnover, the idea of investing one to three years in every worker just isn't plausible if you can't guarantee that they're going to be there for, for very long. That's a huge, um, that's, that's a huge thing that I hear as well. Um, from my clients that I'm working with, which again are predominantly SMEs, that you know it's hard for them to make that justification of training if they're going to leave. You know, if the turnover is so high, um, and that's um, that's some amazing information that you just gave us, and it's just it's so thank you for that. That's great share. Um, I do want to jump into the comments really quickly because we already have some comments and some questions. Um, our first one is coming from Aaron Prather. And Aaron says, SMEs are the backbone of U.S. manufacturing. Thank you to Ben for focusing on them and highlighting their struggles and opportunities. Yes. Thank you so much, Aaron. I agree because I think we do get so caught up in, um, in those larger firms, right? Kind of like uh, how you were saying. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I do think, so I think of the, so one of the focuses, the motivations in my research is how you, the United States can improve um, its manufacturing capabilities. Of course, I think some of the same lessons for the United States can apply to other countries in, in you know, Western Europe. Uh, I think you know, Asian countries are facing a different set of challenges, but also have a, a different set of capabilities and resources, given that the big boom in, uh, let's say, Japanese, Chinese, South Korean, and Singaporean manufacturing has come uh, much more recently than the kind of original capabilities in, let's say, Germany, France, the U.S., and England. But in the U.S., I think there are four categories of, of key actors, and, and one are these legacy SMEs, family-owned businesses that are key suppliers in the auto industry, aerospace, uh, metals, you know, in the defense industrial base, these SMEs are really key. Uh, some of our research shows that um, it depends on the region, but uh, upwards of 40% of all SMEs have at least one defense contract. So the federal government plays a huge role in uh, providing support for SMEs to kind of maybe smooth out some of the market volatility that SMEs might face with a defense contract that is that might be higher margin, allow them to buy new equipment or hire more people. Um, but but also is a is a source of vulnerability because the the types of investments SMEs need to make for DoD aren't necessarily the types of investments that always help them succeed in the market. Right, there are lots of front office administrative costs to comply with DoD contracts, um, and, and it's not necessarily the same lean model that you might need to compete um, for a, for a GM contract, for example. So so there's this this really interesting category of these legacy family owned SMEs that are a huge chunk of American manufacturers. The second category is startups. Um, so startups, I think, have a really uh, these are these are startups that are actually doing production work, not startups that are designing something that's going to be produced in Asia um, or, or in Mexico, as the case may be. Any, you know, it's not to focus on Asia. Just I, I, I single out um, various Asian countries because they're highly productive and, and very uh, you know have have high technology operations. Um, but I'm talking about uh, startups that are actually producing. Uh, parts, fixtures, assemblies, even uh, full uh, products in the United States. And, and these companies are interesting because I think they show us what the capabilities of brand new these brand new technologies are, because they're not mixing legacy technologies with new technologies. They're starting uh, the, these operations from scratch, 
oftentimes very engineering intensive operations. So it's exciting that these startups can show us what the frontier is of productivity. Um, and, and I think, you know, what, what wages uh, production workers might be able to make in a highly productive operation. And then the other two categories are um, large firms that I think are becoming more vertically integrated or their signs they're becoming more vertically integrated after COVID because they want to control more pieces of the operation. I think this brings more opportunities for, for U.S. manufacturing. And then finally, there's there's the capitalists, you know, the private equity firms, the investors, um, the large holding companies that are rolling up manufacturers to try to find efficiencies. And, and these uh, these actors, I think, have the benefits of scale, that if they if they have good ideas and, and, and good practices, they can scale up really quickly. Um, and they, they also um, might might be an might be a resource, so they could be a hindrance to the transformation of these these legacy SMEs. So those are the four key actors, and they have I think different practices. That in, in my work, I try to look at what are they doing really well that that we can learn from, and that that policymakers or other business practitioners uh, can, can emphasize and scale. Absolutely, and for um, some of our audience that is joining us, if um, the startups and and I have personally enjoyed recruiting for startups. I've recruited for about 10 or so startups and just been very fortunate to do so because you're right. It is just such an exciting, different, invigorating experience. Um, but those, those are kind of like your greenfield sites, right? That are just, you know, you, you take a, a industrial site and you just build the operations, manufacturing operations. And I couldn't agree more with that um, because it is just really exciting for the community. Everybody gets, you know, there's just a, generates a buzz of energy. So that's, that's awesome. From those four actors that you were mentioning um, in that, that are indicative to the United States, how do you feel like that compares to other countries where you've done research such as Japan and other parts of the world, China? Yes, so I'm not I'm not a specialist in, in those other countries and, and contexts, but um, I do think that there are one of the big differences in these other places is the ecosystem of supportive institutions for companies of all sizes. So in, in Germany, our uh, research center at MIT does has a partnership with the Fraunhofer Institutes in Germany, which are um, really technology and uh, technology support organizations for companies that are interested in accessing or developing new technologies, mostly in manufacturing, but also in, in other areas. Now, the Manufacturing USA Institute which started as the Manufacturing Innovation Institutes in, in the U.S., were in part modeled on Fraunhofer, but they've been much more, I think, narrowly focused, and they haven't had the level of, of SME uh, buy-in that, that Fraunhofer does. So, so it's, it's really, you know, we're kind of behind in, in scale, and Fraunhofer has been a huge part of the ecosystem. The other part of the ecosystem that's relevant to this conversation, and this is the, the German ecosystem in particular, is the vocational training system, which is not just you know uh, community colleges plus you know for, for our reference point it's a system where there are strong worker organizations that are, are at the table with industry associations to set the curriculum so every couple of years the industry leaders will sit down with worker organizations to say here are the tasks here are how the tasks are changing in these different occupations here are the new things that we need people to learn and, and it's setting a more common curriculum so that 
if you're an SME, you know that you're going to be able to find in the labor market uh, workers who can accomplish certain tasks that you find important for your firm. So there's a lot of coordination that goes into that bef goes in before the actual training is performed um, in, in the German context, which I think is really important. I don't think that type of system is it really translates to the U.S. because we don't have strong industry associations relatively, um, and we don't have strong worker associations, nor do we have any coordination between them. Um, but but there is, I think. Uh, uh, a goal of trying to develop a stronger pool of a stronger sense of what the demand is for for uh, tasks and skills would translate hopefully into uh, community colleges that are that are more connected to to where the market is. Yeah, and that's a big reason of why I started this show because of my previous work in workforce development. It's um, everything was very siloed, and um, you know, to really understand and develop training curriculum for the future of work, um, it was just so important to have that buy-in and that investment from our private sector employer base. And uh, you know, my goal, one of my goals for the show, is to kind of recreate that same atmosphere of those conversations. Um, that we had at the Career Center for a, a broader audience, and maybe we can all kind of learn from each other. Um, I do want to bring up some more of these questions. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for hopping in the chat. Mike Unger uh, from our Industry 4.0 Club, he says, Ben, have you seen SMEs who have leveraged the connectivity that workers have through their personal cell phones? If yes, what results can you share? So, so I don't have any systematic results of kind of a, no study we've done of how cell phone use at, at work or on the factory floor might help workers troubleshoot, for example. But I think you can imagine that when an employee, the, the typical process, right, if there's a machinist and they run into a problem with the machine, they might get a, get a supervisor or a, a maintenance technician to try to fix or troubleshoot the problem. It's not always that they can solve the problem on their own. Similarly, if there's a new, new piece of equipment that a manager is interested in and they want to train up um, a, a, a someone who previously did machining work or assembly work, whatever it is, um, on this new piece of equipment, they might bring in the company that makes the equipment and, and have them do a training or do some online modules. So there's been a little bit of a shift, I think, in this where there's there's a DIY attitude in, in among some workers, which is I'm just going to look it up on YouTube. I'm going to figure out how to solve this problem by myself or learn this new technique by myself by watching YouTube videos. And uh, we've taken this to heart that uh, as academics, you know, we write papers and we do case studies that are sometimes dense and, and not uh, not read by a wide audience. So we're uh, as, as our group, which is you know, the MIT Industrial Performance Center, is, is trying to produce short documentaries on YouTube to highlight cases of, of automation success and, and, and high, highlight cases of technology at work that we see as really instructive for other SMEs that might be struggling to um, adopt uh, new technologies or automation. So, so this is kind of, we, we see people using YouTube as a real asset, real resource, and we want to kind of meet, meet a lot of uh, the folks we work with where they're at. Um, another interesting uh, tactic, so there's this great group in Ohio that has a, an apprenticeship program that's certified through the local community college, but it's taught by a, a local uh, CEO of a local manufacturer. And that uh, instructor who who's, has, is, is really connected to the, the skills that he needs as a as an entrepreneur you know, as a leader of a manufacturing business, um, he has his students not only learn you know, the traditional machining skills and, and traditional uh, skills of what it takes to understand production processes. He also has them follow on Twitter 
and on um, you know on LinkedIn, all the, on on the social media outlets, all the the new tool manufacturers that are relevant to their business, so that they under, they know the newest videos they're putting out, um, the latest machines that are being produced. So it's not like they just see at a trade show every year what the new equipment is. They're they're getting it straight from the equipment manufacturer, and they're trying to understand where the trends are going. So I like that in bringing essentially a passion for or a hobby for um, new manufacturing equipment to try to bring that into the classroom. So, so I really appreciated that, um, that tactic as well, which, which sort of speaks to Mike's question. Absolutely. I enjoy um, really progressive uh, educational providers and what they're doing. It, it, do you have the name of that company? Maybe we could follow them on Twitter as well and follow along on their journey. Oh, I'm sorry, Ann. I'm, I'm, you're breaking up a little bit. Can you repeat that one more time? Sure. Yeah. Um, do you have the company name? I'd love to follow them on Twitter. I bet our audience would love to as well, so we can keep up with their journey too. Oh, let me let me check in if I could if I could give them a name and a, a Twitter handle. Yeah, I'd be happy to follow up with that. Sure. Absolutely. Um, we have another question popping up here. I'm pretty sure this is also a co-founder of the Industry 4.0 Club, Carol Mitchell. And um, just we'll, we'll say LinkedIn user. I understand I'm always the random LinkedIn user when I pop into these chats as well. But um, our friend Carol is asking, how can leadership at SMEs who want to keep up to date access the tools they need to stay competitive what are they asking for? That's an excellent question. Yeah, I, I, I think it, it really varies widely. And that's one of the challenges that I've found is that uh, there's kind of this snowflake challenge with SMEs that each of these companies has very specific skill needs. They have uh, the way that they do business and it's not there's not a standard or a protocol that if you just provide these resources, they're relevant to a broad cross-section of SMEs. I, I wish that were the case because then it would be easier if we, if we learn something for it to scale across different companies. Um, you know, I find that a lot of SMEs uh, are, are going to um, their MEPs, their manufacturing extension partnerships. And I think MEPs have a, um, you know, in some states, they're much more resource enabled to answer the questions that SMEs need and provide resources. And others, they're, they're really, um, I think they're more strapped. Um, so um, let, let me think about the, the what are they asking for? I think the, the main thing, if we just look at surveys, what SMEs are asking for is how do we hire and retain good talent, which is why I think, Anne, what you're doing is, is really um, important to think through the ways that SMEs can deal with their workforce challenges. And then the, the second piece that I think SMEs are asking for is how do we win new customers or compete for new business? Now, I, I'm not sure that uh, that that second question is more toward a subset of SMEs that are really growth oriented. And and what I've been surprised with, you know, I, I started my career in the software industry, which is just all focused on growth metrics. It's how fast can we grow? How many user, new users can we acquire? When are we going to double our revenue? And in manufacturing, the mindset is so starkly different that a lot of manufacturers with backlog, for example, or with long customer relationships are really looking at how do we continue to build these customer relationships, manage our backlog? It's not a focus on, on growth unless that growth is going to come from existing customers. Um, but the growth-oriented SMEs, I think, are looking at how do we get a competitive edge to win new customers, to, to outbid our competitors, et cetera. And, and I think that growth mindset is something that the current resources 
out there, the current ecosystem in a lot of regions doesn't really support. Um, and, and I think the part of the frustration that sometimes here is that SMEs are always just trying to be sold something. You know, if a technology vendor is coming out, they're trying to sell the technology. They're not trying to help them help them figure out where their next competitive edge comes from. So um, that's part of the challenge of this of this kind of fractured ecosystem in manufacturing, where if there is a manufacturer who really needs to hire or is struggling to grow, there's not a there's not a clear pathway of people they can ask for advice. So during COVID, for example, when there were a lot of these open questions about how do we survive? How do we build this? We need new capabilities. How do we get a new supplier for this thing that's out of stock? Um, there was a, these kind of informal networks of, of manufacturers within region. I think they talked a lot more. You know, my colleague has had specific conversations about um, how these networks that were very informal and kind of weak connections before COVID became stronger during COVID when these um, these challenges became more urgent. So I think those informal networks are, are one way that, that manufacturers currently um, get new information and try to find out uh, uh, opportunities to grow. But I, I think the, the question that your colleague brings up is a, a real challenge that is currently unmet, I think, in, in most regions. There are some places that, that have a dense network of supportive organizations like MEPs and, and related ones, but, but not all uh, areas in the U.S., to be sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can only attest from my previous experience as well, but I think there's some very valid points there. Thank you for sharing that, Ben. Um, I think we have time for one more question, if that's okay for the day. Um, but just regarding, I kind of, I don't know, I name all of my episodes very specifically um, you know, either things that I've said on LinkedIn or, or things that people have approached me and asked me about, because, you know, I know there's certainly some interest on those things, but, um, I'm wondering, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you probably get asked a lot as well, but it, you know, kind of what the secret is, what's the secret sauce, right? Because a big struggle with the SMEs again is the recruiting and retaining talent long-term and, you know, what can we do better? How do we do better? Um, you know, what's, what's that thing, right? And, uh, from your perspective, is there one thing that SMEs are doing uh, that that's standing out to you that's being successful or is there a multitude of things that they're doing in if it is a multitude of things what are those things sure so, so I'll focus on on three things so uh, one is is technology related uh, the second is more workforce related and the third is I would say management related um, and and it's different to think about these things at the firm level so how do I succeed in my firm versus to think about it as at the the ecosystem level or how how do we build a stronger u.s manufacturing ecosystem so at the firm level what i've seen associated with success and, and this is more you know uh, anecdotal is that firms that adopt technology to improve their flexibility so so typically with automation technologies uh, you think of, okay, what are the routine tasks that my workers are doing? What are they doing at, you know, a thousand times a week? 
um, that I can then find a machine to do it at a lower cost and with more reliability. Now, that's a model of thinking of robots or of machines as more efficient workers who don't need to take bathroom breaks. I'm sure in your conversations with employers, you hear, oh, a, a robot is, is so good. It doesn't need to take a break and it never shows up late and, and all these things. But that mindset about adopting robotics and adopting new technology has a very, I think, limited ability to scale its impact. So if you take a worker off a machine and you just replace them with a robot, there's no upside for innovation, right? Your process doesn't really improve um, at all by just having the robot do repetitive tasks. And your flexibility when you need to you know, switch from one, uh, one type of unit to another um, doesn't improve either, right? Actually, you know, in some cases, the switching, the switching time can go way up in an automated system versus relying on a, a human to switch between processes or switch between units. So um, oftentimes we see a trade-off when you adopt automation. There's a trade-off of you gain productivity, but you lose flexibility and you might also lose innovation. So the firms that I think are really powerful are firms that adopt new technology, but also are tra train their workers enough to use it in a flexible way. So this technology can be deployed in different contexts. Um, you can think about it in using the technology to start new processes altogether or to re-engineer old processes. So this is more of a positive sum automation where you're not trading off flexibility for productivity, but you're indeed, you're gaining some productivity and you're also hopefully gaining flexibility as well. Maybe not as much productivity as you would gain in a, in a kind of a pure routinized uh, task, but you're, you're trying to use new technology for more flexibility. So that's kind of how I think firms can use technology in a, in a productive way, not just thinking about technologies competing with, with human workers. Uh, the second piece is, um, I think firms benefit when they really trust their workers to use their, their creative skills and their experience on the job, rather than essentially just training the workers to, oh, call the engineer. Um, so, so some firms, and I think more engineering intensive firms actually benefit from this, where they give workers a lot of autonomy and a lot of uh, room for upward mobility, that if you learn to be creative and you learn to be autonomous on the job, um, that, that you're rewarded both in, you know, in compensation, but also in responsibility. So, so this is uh, a pattern of when you adopt a piece of technology, you could use that technology to essentially disempower your workers, to turn your worker into just a you know, just an from a machinist to just an inspector, or you could turn them into a cell leader. And, and that that turning point, I think, is really important. And empowering workers, I think, has a lot of downstream benefits. And then finally, the management question. You know, I think that SME managers, uh, by and large, are extremely smart, um, extremely. Uh, per uh, they're they're very strong willed. And you know, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but they're, they're extremely capable people who have done uh, to keep their business alive during the last 30 years of American manufacturing decline is a remarkable achievement. But I, I do think that many of them are risk averse in that they, you know, because they have been in survival mode for so long, they're unwilling to um, to take risks. So they might just not have the capital to take risks that they would otherwise take. So I, I do think that the firms that are willing to take more risk um, and, and try out building new products, for example, you saw some of these firms emerge during COVID, um, that those are firms that, that really uh, have the opportunity for growth. Obviously, there's this risk, you know, <laughs> growth opportunities come with risk, but the more risk tolerant firms, I find more exciting. 
to track it and, and more innovative overall. And I think we'll, we'll fare better in the long term. Um, I don't think firms should be on their own to take risks, given that what the, where the market is for U.S. manufacturing and how far behind we are countries that subsidize manufacturing in various ways. I think that there's a role for public policy to uh, to to make it easier for manufacturers to take risks, essentially de-risk some of the investments that manufacturers should be making. Um, so long winded answer for those three, um, you know, those three keys, I think, to uh, to hopefully you know, uh, that, that I see associated with success in manufacturing. But such valuable takeaways there, right? I mean, that's just some great um, information to unpack. And I wish that we had hours to go over and unpack that. I would personally love to to pick your brain. So, um, you know, if you're up for it, um, we'll have to continue this discussion on another episode of Workforce 4.0. Um, absolutely. We are uh, close to time today. Um, if anybody out there in our audience wants to connect with you or reach out to you to learn more about your amazing work at MIT and what you guys are, are doing for the future of the workforce, how can they get in touch with you? Sure, just send me, send me an email, uh, armst at mit.edu, and uh, I'd be happy to chat. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate everybody for coming today to the comments and asking such amazing questions for Ben. Ben, I appreciate you for uh, taking your time and uh, speaking with me today about these um, influential topics. I think they're so important for people and, and you were certainly a wealth of information for all of us, I think. So thank you for that. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. With that, um, I believe we're ready to close today. Um, ben, any final questions or remarks? No, no that's it. Uh, the a rooster just crowed behind me. So uh, I think that's a good, uh, that's a good conclusion. I love that. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm jealous. I could have, I could have some chickens, but that's, that's neither here nor there. I appreciate you Ben so much. Thank you guys so much again. What a way to cap off season one of Workforce 4.0. We will see you guys in two weeks on September 7th for our next live episode. Thank you guys so much. You guys have an amazing day and a happy Workforce Wednesday.